0: With the divisional round now in the books, the Inside the Pylon podcast is back for our weekly extended edition here. To get you caught up on what we are expecting next week, we're going to have Brandon Thorne from the Football Educator joining us to talk a little bit about Patriots-Broncos. We're also going to be joined later on today by Dan Hatman from the Scouting Academy talking about some of the coaching changes here. But before we do anything else, as always, I'd like to welcome in my co-host Mark Schofield.
1: And Mark... Busy week, busy week, and I guess we got to start with the Adele Taylor Swift update, right? I am still, still, unfortunately, I've
0: not heard from Taylor Swift at all. She has ignored all of my tweets, much to my chagrin.
1: Not really unexpected, but still nothing, nothing, uh, nothing on my end. Look to all our faithful listeners out there, can you just tweet at Taylor Swift or at Adele and make one last run at this? So maybe one of them, you know, Chuck will have to sing or I have to sing. Otherwise, it's duet time, my friend.
0: It's, it's getting to be just about that point. If you do want to tweet at Taylor Swift or at Adele, uh, please do it nicely. We're not asking you to... No. Uh, to you don't know, troll tr- them. Don't, don't, they're nice people. Don't, don't troll around. They're very nice people, which is why we want to sing their songs. But at this point, it looks like we will be opening our pre-Super Bowl show with a duet from Mark and I of Aerosmith's Don't Want to Miss a Thing. So Maybe that's
1: just what the people want. Do you think this is all kind of a big uh, conspiracy, Maybe. I'm going to roll with that so I feel a little bit better about myself. How about that?
0: Yeah. It, it's. I, I think that's probably the most likely option here. Yeah. Um, But we do only have about 40 minutes today, so let's start to dig into football. We uh, Obviously, we're going to be covering uh, the upcoming championship round games all week on our uh, both extended and Quick Kicks podcasts. But I thought we could start to dig into the draft a little bit, especially with the Senior Bowl coming up next week. And you and I are both going to be heading down there for a few days. That's right. And and just kind of talking about some of the prospects that we really want to see there. Obviously, look, you've got more than I do in terms of – players of interest. I think we have,
1: what is it, eight quarterbacks down there? That's right. Eight QBs. That's, that's a big number. Usually they've got six down there. They've got eight this year. And, you know, a lot of guys that I'm very excited to see. I mean, obviously off the top, Carson Wentz, um, North Dakota State quarterback, who I, I I went back and looked, and I wrote my first piece about him and in in Bison Nation back December of 2014. Is that right? So that, yeah. So that's how long I've been kind of looking at this guy and this offense. And you know, Jeff Risden, who's actually he's going to join us a little later this week for one of our Quick Hicks podcasts, he's down at the Shrine game right now. But he almost broke the he broke Twitter last night. We're recording this on Tuesday. Monday night he broke Twitter with the news that he had learned from somebody he was talking to down there for the Shrine game that Wentz might not even get to pick number four. Now talk about that. I mean,
0: when, when you look at Wentz right now and you've studied him just about as much as anyone else out there, Is that more a case, in your opinion, of need at those positions or talent matching the actual draft position?
1: Uh, I mean, at the outset, look, quarterback is such a position of need almost for every team. I mean, look up and down the NFL rosters. Even, like, you know, Denver right now, they're in the AFC Championship game, but there's question marks at the quarterback position. I mean... Who knows if this is Peyton Manning's last ride? What are they going to do with Osweiler, who's a free agent at the end of the season? So quarterbacks get overvalued. Teams reach for them sooner than pretty much any other position. With respect to Wentz, he's a guy that going into the season, I had him, I think, QB5, maybe QB4 going into the season, and he's pretty much shown that, yeah, he's – an NFL quarterback. He's an NFL caliber quarterback. And as this season went along, I started thinking, okay, maybe second round guy, maybe he creeps into that late first round. He's a guy that I would love to see a team in that last half of the first round take a team that can let him sit for a year. But the buzz apparently is real. And I think what we're seeing now is questions developed around guys like Jared Goff, guys like Paxton Lynch that people were thinking were we'll quarterback one, quarterback two in this draft. Once was on the shelf with that wrist injury, comes back in the FCS championship game, knocked a little bit of rust off, but people went down to see him in person in that game down in Frisco and really liked what they saw. So if he's down there in Mobile and slinging the ball all over over the lot and teams get to see that up close, it would not surprise me to see him go that high, even though if, you know, I'd be bending the table for him if I were in a draft room at around 20. I don't know if I'd be doing it at three. What do you have when you uh you talk
0: about him as a as a pro QB scheme fit? Something we talk about quite a bit on Inside the Pylon. What type of scheme do you think is a best fit for him? Because obviously, number of different offenses that you have out there. What do you think is is kind of scheme? And also, is you know when we talk about a player going into uh, the NFL, what type of setting
1: is is he a day one starter? Is he a city year and then start him? What do you think? In terms of scheme fit, when Matt Walden and I broke Wentz down back in August and I, you know, I made a comment that, look, I, I think Gary Kubiak's watching this right now and salivating because I really think, you know, I had this vision of him going to Denver and sitting for a year and taking over from Peyton Manning. Because he can operate under center, he's athletic, so you can get him involved in the boot game, roll him out to the right or to the left, which Kubiak likes to do, get off crossing routes from the tight end, from the backside of the backfield. That's a scheme, that's an offensive system that I think he would flourish in. Now, is he a day one guy? I don't think so. I, I, I don't see him starting week one next year. I think he needs a little bit of seasoning, which is why I thought Denver would be a great landing spot for him. Let him learn for a year or two. But if you're taking a guy in the top five, this is a very win-now, deliver-now kind of business. And fan bases, coaching staffs, they might not be patient to let him sit. So, I mean, I wouldn't do it, but we'll have to see where he lands. I mean, it's all about scheme fit and landing spot. So... We have to see, but I mean, I guess this really just kicked off draft season into high gear, man.
0: Well, it, it did, and, and obviously, Senior Bowl, you're talking about the you know week of practices that are now only a few days away here. I start going through the list, and, and you know, I, I was going through last night trying to see, okay, who am I actually really interested to see? And I got a guy that you actually wrote about uh, earlier this year, and that's Dan Vitale from Northwestern. Yeah. And Dan Vitali, yeah. you know, obviously fullback has become a position in the NFL that has pretty much disappeared at this point, but you wrote about Dan Vitalian and his ability not only just in the blocking game but also running the football and out of the backfield, and I'm curious to see what he does on a field with a lot of these other great prospects to see if he can potentially carve out a role just as kind of more of an H-back tight end if that's maybe the direction they end up using him in.
1: Yeah, I think that's an interesting name and a guy that, you know, you're excited to see him, I'm excited to see him, because you see a lot of teams that use that zone blocking scheme in a split zone design, and that's what... Uh, Northwestern did a lot with him they'd have him lined up as a win have him block across the formation which eventually sets up the fake the block play action and he releases into the flat. Yep. He was a very capable receiver uh, off out of the win out of the backfield. Caught some plays in the vertical passing game where he just ran seam routes. So, you know, he's a very a very interesting guy, somebody that I think would find a home, you know, on a team to help out, you know, that back end of the roster, helping some, you know, packages what other guys are you looking forward to watching down there? Vitali's one, but who else?
0: Well, look, obviously I'm, I'm going to segue into kickers right now just because obviously that's, that's – look, it's, I'm the only guy that gets excited about just going down to the senior bowl to watch kickers. Two guys that I, I want to see where they end up stacking up uh, in terms of my kickers ratings are going to be down there. Kaimi Fairbairn out of UCLA is going to be there. He has a very strong leg. He's had some issues in terms of – I've watched him and his trajectory appears to be a little bit low, so you wonder how he's going to come through there and whether that's going to be an issue – Uh, as he gets to the pro level. Ross Martin from Duke is going to be down there as well. I had written about and interviewed Martin earlier this year. I think he's a very strong kicker. The one issue that he has uh, dealt with and that he he still has to deal with, really, his kickoffs, he doesn't quite have the depth on kickoffs uh, that you would necessarily like to see. Out of a kicker in the NFL now, there's some teams you talk about uh, the Colts, for example, that use Pat McAfee, their punter, as their kickoff guy, and in that type of situation, he could be a good fit. But Adam Vinatieri, despite being over 40 years old at this point, doesn't really show any signs of slowing down there. So Martin's a guy who I really like him as a place kicker, but the kickoff issue. Could be something he has to work on, and I want to see if he's able, if he's been able to make any progress there since the end of the season. So, in terms of specialists, those are the two big guys. The punters that are down there aren't really at the top of my list. Riley Dixon from Syracuse and Alex Canal from uh, Wake Forest. Neither of those are really up near the top of my list. So, I'll take a look and see exactly uh, what is going on with them and where exactly they stand right now. But I think the kickers here more attractive to me than the uh, the punters down there.
1: Speaking of punters, he's not going to be at the Senior Bowl. We saw a Delaware punter actually declare early for the draft. I know you got a chance to look at him. What did you see when you dug into that kid?
0: Well, I, I looked at him, and he reminded me an awful lot of uh, the punter that we had at Dartmouth My uh, pretty much my entire time there, Brian Scullen, who uh, my my senior year, actually, we led the country in net punting average, believe it or not and Brian was a major component of that. Brian, I think at the end of the day, was probably about two or three yards short in terms of his distance and maybe a half second short on hang time to be able to make it to the NFL. He was an outstanding punter, but it's just that little 5% difference between being a great college punter and being able to do it in the pros. And when I looked at what I saw here, I saw a very similar uh, type of skill set. He's the kind of guy who Look, I think he'll probably get a couple looks, but I don't necessarily know if he's the kind of guy that can make it in the NFL. That's something that I do have a question about.
1: Is there sort of a decision-making factor here? I mean, would it make sense for a punter to return to school and get another year in collegiate punting, punting every day, working out every day, or do you think a decision to leave early as a punter makes sense?
0: You know, I go back and forth on it. I think... I think leaving early as a punter, it probably doesn't make sense just in terms of it's not like uh, if you, you know, a punter's never going to be a first round pick. Okay, we we know that at this point. We've occasionally seen a couple kickers be first round picks and I've actually thought that that has been the wrong move just because in most cases it's not worth it. So it's not a case like you're not going to have a guy sliding down draft boards or anything like that, and, and losing himself a ton of money. But you could have a year, and look, you talk about what happened to uh, kicker Roberto Aguayo this year, where you know a lot of people have questioned his decision uh, to come out early this year. Could have come out early last year, actually, and a lot of people have questioned you know whether you know he should have gone last year or whether he should have waited another year. And it's you know on it's it's tough to say for those guys because. You have such a small sample size of kicks. You know, you're talking 30 kicks as a kicker maybe. You're talking maybe 50 to 60 punts. And if you just have a couple, you know, a couple bad games in there, you know, that can skew your entire your entire projection then. And, you know, it's it's very difficult to say. I don't have strong feelings one way or another on it just because I think often you're talking about guys at the back end of the of the draft anyways that it's not going to make a huge impact on, but In this case, when we talk about the Delaware punter, look, I've I've got some questions just because I didn't see anything that was necessarily, uh, you know, standing out to me as, okay, this guy is definitely, you know, even going to play in the NFL. There's nothing there that stood out uh, to me there. So I do want to go to uh, our first guest now. We are joined by Dan Hatman from the Scouting Academy. You can follow him on Twitter at Dan underscore Hatman. And Dan, I know that you just had a uh, class start up a couple days ago, right? yesterday in fact full uh full house there everyone ready to learn
2: (laughs) we do we have a full house this group is is chomping at the bit they're uh they attacked the first day like none other so I'm excited
0: good to hear good to hear well let's uh let's dig into some of the coaching and front office changes uh that we have seen so far this offseason obviously this is always a busy time for uh interviews for whether we're talking coordinators coaches gm candidates i guess uh just off the top what do you think has been the most surprising decision that we've seen so far
2: surprising decision i think it is uh, some of the coaches that have been let go and the the length of the tenure so like a a jim Tomsula getting one year um a lovey smith Uh, being let go, which was rumored because the team was fearful of losing Dirk Cutter, who they ultimately promoted, into that role. Uh, This year has just been a a little different in that a majority of the candidates have been bumped up internally. Even a a Philadelphia went back to the well with a Doug Peterson. So this was not a year where teams um, felt like they needed to make a change and went out to the market and scoured. People, it sounds like uh, decision makers had ideas long ahead of time about where they wanted to take things.
0: Dan, when when we look at that and and talk about the uh, the candidates essentially that were brought in, then seems like. Not quite as much as in recent years obviously you do have chip Kelly heading out to uh, heading out to San Francisco here but starting to get some new blood coming in at least and whether that's a good thing or bad thing I think remains to be seen but it seems like we're seeing more new names accepting positions
2: from the standpoint of coaches.
0: I think uh, more, I guess, more in the front office side, and maybe I'm just looking uh, at we're seeing, at what we're seeing from the Cleveland Browns, uh, and, and I know it's been maligned to a certain extent what they are doing there, but you are seeing some new names at least coming into the building here.
2: Certainly, you know, um, from the standpoint of the GMs, the, the four major moves this year were Detroit, uh, Miami, Cleveland, and Tennessee. Uh, Miami promoted internally with Chris Greer. Um, He'd been there a long time. Tennessee and Detroit went out to the market. They both hired former Patriots, scouts, and executives of their teams, and Bob Quinn and John Robinson. But then to your point, in Cleveland, um, they changed their their model. So it wasn't uh, like we we had a general manager we've let go, we filled that spot. They had a general manager, Ray Farmer. They had two senior lieutenants in Morocco, Brown and Bill Coonerich. As well, uh, that came, you know, two years after uh, the Mike Lombardi situation with Joe Banner, and so after three years, they cleaned out two full front offices and then rebuilt from the ground up. But so they promoted uh, Asashi Brown, who was a kind of a general counsel and an advisor on a variety of matters, into the the individual who's going to have the final say in the fifty-three, which, in my opinion, becomes the GM, whatever you want to call him. I, I care less about their title. If you're picking the fifty-three, you're the GM. Um, so Sashi has that position and then supported him with a Paul D. Podesta who they brought in from the Mets, and, and yes, the, the baseball Mets there. And I think that was in, unique in the sense that they're clearly looking at their processes and have made a determination of things that they have done since Haslam has taken over, have not produced any winning results. So let's go back to the drawing board, let's bring in smart people and see if we can't adjust every uh, process in our building to see if we can find better
1: performance. Dan, speaking of about guys who will be picking a 53-man roster, Tennessee sort of finalized their front office. They brought in John Robinson now to be general manager, formerly with Tampa Bay and New England. And now Mike Malarca, the interim head, co- interim head coach, is now the head coach. Do you like these decisions in Tennessee, and do you think this is a good direction for the Titans?
2: Well, you, you can – See why Robinson won that interview. Uh, they had six candidates come through in their search. And when you listen to John in John's press conference yesterday, he's from Tennessee. Uh, when the team moved there in 97, he, he jumped on the fan, uh, bandwagon there. And it, it was just near and dear to him. There was an emotion to him at the end about how much he wants to take the Tennessee Titans, his hometown team basically, uh, to the next level. And that resonates with ownership, right? It just it means something to them that this isn't just another one of the 32 jobs, but this is the job that that individual wants. And clearly people get excited about the New England background. Um, team's just been so successful. How can you not? And so, you know, they, they clearly got excited about that. From a coaching search standpoint, um, the fans in Tennessee are not very happy with how that search went down. They basically admitted Steve Underwood Admitted yesterday that the owner, um, Amy adams Strong basically picked Malarkey out long before they finished uh, with the candidates that they brought in. They interviewed two guys internally, two guys externally, and then you know named Malarkey. Um, guy's in his third go-round here as a head coach. He had only one year in Jacksonville, so that wasn't a long tenure. We'll see. You know, He, he clearly indicated in the press conference yesterday he felt like the roster was not NFL-worthy. Uh, they had a lot of Hurdles they were trying to clear. He was not happy with the offensive system. Um, The depth of it, he didn't feel like that was an asset to Mariota. He talked about streamlining the playbook. And then his uh, clearly aimed appearance and really experienced coordinators you're talking about. He's looking to retain Dick LeBeau as a defensive coordinator. Terry Rubisky sounds like he's coming in from Atlanta to be the offensive coordinator. Both those guys have been head coaches and coordinators before. just hired Bobby April, the veteran special teams coordinator, to come in. Um, I mean, those top four guys in the organization have huge levels of experience. So hopefully that, that means something.
0: Dan, uh, talking uh, about the, the Chip Kelly hire out in San Francisco, and we've seen a couple cases in the last 10 to 15 years where coaches have gone directly from one job to another and been able to adjust on the fly and, and correct some of the missteps that they had had at their previous uh, employers. Is this a situation where Kelly may have benefited from maybe having a year off, or do you think this is a situation that he can adjust to and make a difference in San Francisco right away?
2: Well, I guess it depends on what you consider to be his biggest misstep. So, you know, the early argument was, as soon as he became G-GAM, they lost. Well, yes, for the 360-some-odd days where he had final control um, they had their worst win-loss record, and clearly some of the decisions from a personnel standpoint, people had were scratching their heads over. Um, uh, Deshaun happened before he had personnel control. That was an individual that just wasn't buying into the program. And if you if you sit there and say that Tennessee did a great job yesterday of talking about people who were team first, and that's what they wanted, you know Deshaun's never gotten that label. He's never gotten a team first label. So I, I can understand that move. Um, Jeremy Macklin got paid $11 million a year in Kansas City. You know, it's just somebody they couldn't really retain, and they thought they drafted a similar player in Al Galore uh, to replace that. Um, the biggest one people seem to have confusion over is LaShawn McCoy, and then to replace him with DeMarco Murray and for that to not pan out the way that it did is just the, the big spectacular move. But he also got rid of and cut bait on a lot of veteran players with bigger contracts, that all of which got picked up, basically, in other teams and, and none of which performed very well. So he also saw the writing on the wall and declining performance. Um, I think he's looking forward, and this is from a a, a non-knowledgeable position of his actual thoughts, but I would assume he's excited about the opportunity to work with Tom Gamble again. I know for a fact those two work well together. Uh, Tom's number two out there underneath Trent Baalke in San Francisco. I'm sure that went a long way to, to helping that position come together. I think Chip's looking forward to not having to pick the 53. It was not his intention when he got to Philadelphia. I was in the building when he got there. He did not come in trying to grab scouting control. He just wanted a coach. Um, And that was a matter of other circumstances that came to pass. So I think he's excited about having a GM and a scouting staff um, that he seems to believe in. And then the biggest thing will be, can he get the locker room to buy in? that was, I think, the most concerning thing for me at the end was just how many players were either overtly through social media or other channels talking about it or, you know, at least dropping rumors to other beat writers about how they would not buy in and how he didn't have control of the locker room and how guys didn't believe him and want to play for him. That's, that, to me, is the biggest issue. So in going to San Francisco, and if they're going to have success there, those guys have to believe in him, want to play for him, give that extra performance, You know, even just a 5% here or there, that helps push over the top in these these tough battles. Especially in an NFC West, it's only getting stronger with each and every year. So, um, in terms of time off, it, it very well could have helped him. Depends on what he did with it. Uh, but I guess we'll find out you know, if he can adjust here in, in six, eight weeks and put a new plan together.
0: Very good. Well, Dan, I appreciate you uh, joining us today, and we'll catch up with you soon, okay? All right, guys. Dan Hatman, the director of the Scouting Academy. You can also follow him on Twitter at Dan underscore hatman, and you can visit the Scouting Academy at scoutingacademy.com. I know, Mark, you uh, went through their program and had nothing but good things to say about it.
1: Yeah, it's a great program, and I've said it before and I'll say it again. I would strongly recommend that anybody interested in getting into scouting, getting into coaching, getting into media, or just learning more about the game of football... Get a chance to you know set, set aside a couple of weeks and uh, take this class. It's it's a great program. They do great a great job with it. Dan does great work with it. And you know we were just talking about the Senior Bowl. One of the things they're doing next week, they're going to have a live scouting academy at the Senior Bowl, where you know students that have gone through the program are getting the chance to go down there and look at the observe the practices and go to the weigh ins and you know have live hands-on training it's a great opportunity so take the course you'll open some doors for you
0: yeah I think it's uh it's it's been really interesting just being able to uh to speak with Dan as well as you having gone through his program so I think it's uh it's been interesting for me just having not actually gone through there just to see what the two of you have been able to uh to do with the knowledge uh, that you've picked up there so very interesting. And I do want to go uh, to our second guest now, joined by Brandon Thorne from thefootballeducator.com. He, you can follow him on Twitter at Veteran Scout. And, Brandon, thanks for joining us.
3: Hey, thanks for having me, guys.
0: Absolutely. And, Brandon, uh, talking uh, about what you saw from uh, the Broncos last weekend uh, facing the Steelers, offense seemed to have some trouble getting going at some points. What do you think were the key causes to that?
3: Yeah. You know, I think we really struggled to run the ball. Um, you know, we stuck to it throughout pretty much the whole game, but Pittsburgh, you got to give credit to their defensive line. Um, you know, I mentioned during the game, you know, somebody really stood out to me was Stephon Tuit, uh, from Notre Dame. He had a really great game and he wrecked a lot of, uh, the Broncos running game plans, uh, especially in the first half. So I think that was probably the biggest thing. Um, followed closely by the drops that uh, Peyton Manning was experiencing. You know, uh, I think we all know that, we, you know, Peyton Manning needs everything to be working um, in his favor to, to have success, and uh, they did no favors for him. So I think kind of both those things.
1: Brandon, another thing in terms of what we saw from Denver was, you know, looking at the other side of the ball and that pass rush, I know you were – on Twitter during the game, talking about Vaughn Miller didn't really do a lot in terms of getting after Ben Roethlisberger. Did you see anything from that Denver defense that has you sort of concerned going into this next matchup? Or do you think that it was just partially game plan or Pittsburgh's scheme that were able to sort of slow down that pass rush? You
3: know, Vaughn Miller, for the most part, is probably one of the most heavily blocked guys in the NFL. You know, he gets doubled triple their times, gets chipped constantly, and, you know, New England did a lot of the same thing, um, but Vaughn Miller still may, had, a, you know, an impact on the game, um, particularly late down the stretch there, you know, that spin move we put on Marcus Gilbert to pressure Tom Brady at the or, excuse me, Ben Roethlisberger at the end, um, you know, that pretty much sealed the game, so, you know, he's, he's just uh, one of those guys that's going to grind through the whole game, and you better block him for the full 60 minutes or else you know, that last play of the game, he can make a play to to change the whole tide of the game. So, um, you know, that that doesn't worry me so much. I'm more concerned with Chris Harris, um, his shoulder injury, you know, not really playing um, too much. You know, they took him out of the base defense, look, put him Bradley Roby. I think that's going to be a key come Sunday against New England, Um, you know, because New England, you know, with Julian Edelman back, probably – you know, probably the best slot receiver in the game, Chris Harris, maybe the best slot corner in the game, you know, not having Harris possibly for that game is going to be huge, I think. And I think the key to that game, honestly, just to kind of uh, preview that would be uh Denver interior defensive line, getting pressure up the middle. Cause you know, and Miller, you know, that's great to have them off the edges, but if you don't get that interior pressure, I think we all know Tom Brady can still carve you up. He, He made the Chiefs outside rushers kind of, he rendered them kind of useless, Um, even though Justin Houston didn't play too much. uh, Still, you know, I think Malik Jackson, Derek Wolfe signing that new contract, those guys are going to be the guys, I think, that are really going to be huge in this game.
0: Brandon, when we uh, talk about the last meeting that these two teams had, obviously they faced off uh back in november very different looks for both teams uh the patriots missing two linebackers uh both both their star linebackers dante hightower and jamie collins the broncos had a different quarterback with brock osweiler under center there can we glean anything from that previous matchup or these two teams so different in the conditions even so different this weekend that it's going to be a very different game um yeah it's
3: going to be very different because i don't uh... If I'm correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think Gronkowski or Edelman played either. Um, so, yeah, you know, those four guys, the two that you previously mentioned, plus Gronk and Edelman, I mean, those are arguably the four best players, aside from Tom Brady on the team. And um, So, yeah, it's, it's definitely going to be a different game. Um, you know, I think the Broncos are going to play have, pretty much have to play perfect to win uh, turnover-free football. Um, you know, the receivers are definitely going to have to help out Peyton Manning because, um, you know, I think we saw that Peyton Manning, you know, he's really good about getting everybody in the correct position pre-snap. Um, but as far as the execution piece post-snap, I mean, he needs a lot of help. Um, so everybody's going to have to step up. It's going to be, have to be a collective effort to beat this team. Um, but, you know, the Broncos have a lot of experience in close games. They could just keep it close till the end. I think they got a shot. You know, they have, I believe, 13 games this year have been decided by seven points or fewer, and the Broncos are 10-3 and in those games. Um, So I think that's a a telling stat to them and their resiliency. Um, So, yeah, it's just a matter of just keeping it close. And, uh, yeah, I think they'll have a shot.
1: Brandon, if Harris can't go, how do you think? You know, looking at it scheme wise, how do you think this Denver secondary looks to, you know, kind of contain both Gronkowski and Edelman and the rest of that Patriots receiving core? Well,
3: I, I still think you know. Well, first, I'll just touch on uh, Bradley Roby. You know, the guy who's going to pretty much take Harris's place. Um, you know, I feel pretty comfortable about about that. I guess switch off. Um, Roby's a more similar player to Chris Harris than he is to Tlaib. You know, Tlaib is he's more of a you know press corner. Um, but as far as you know playing off coverage zone with with to and him, you know his lateral quickness, you know being somewhat of a liability. I think that the New England receivers can really take advantage of that. I think Broncos are going to have to try to do a little bit more man coverage and try to press these receivers, knock off the timing, and then rely on that. You know, ferocious front. You know, front four, pretty much front front four, front five to get pressure on Brady. Um, I think that's what you got to do. And then Gronk. I mean, he's he has to be the focal point. I mean, you have to bracket him, you have to double him, um, you have to you know do everything that you can to first and foremost focus your defensive efforts on him. And uh, I think if you do more of the, the man coverage um, route. I think you probably have more success against this team. You know, zone coverage, Tom Brady's going to eat that up, especially if he has any longer than, what, like two seconds. You know, he's he's pretty much going to eat that up. So,
0: um,
3: yeah, I think that's kind of the route you have to go. Um, And uh, it's going to be a huge challenge, that's for sure.
0: It's going to be quite a battle, isn't it? I'm pretty excited for it.
3: Yeah, me too, man. I mean, you know, and I I, I don't – no, for sure, but I think the Broncos were missing a safety in that game against New England as well, and you know we should be fully healthy there, so that'll be a big part in uh, stopping Gronk as well, I think.
0: Well, we'll definitely be chatting with you uh, throughout the next uh, next couple days, and I know we'll uh, probably be going back and forth on Twitter with you during the game, all right?
3: All right, guys. Sounds good.
0: All right. Brandon Thorne from thefootballeducator.com. You can also follow him on Twitter, at Scout and... Mark, we, we talked uh, in our in our podcast yesterday just about, you know, the, the great games that we're gonna have this weekend with arguably look, you got the four best teams in the league here. You don't have any teams that kinda snuck under the radar, maybe didn't earn it over the course of the season. You've got four
1: great teams here, and we're gonna have two great games on Sunday. I really think we are. I mean, talking to family, talking to friends about this weekend, I think like we said, we've got the four best teams. We got two great matchups, great storylines across the board, um, both the human interest stuff, but schematically i mean we've got a lot of x's and o's scheme stuff that we'll be breaking down over at inside the pylon.com this week and on the quick Hicks podcast so i mean these should be two sort of classic conference championship games so i'm excited to excited to watch them, excited to cover them
0: yeah it should be great but we are going to take a quick look back at uh the the key play on offense from the divisional round games this is our harry stamper all go offensive play of the week
1: and mark what'd you pick out for this week Well, for this week's Harry Stamper, I'll go Offensive Player of the Week, brought to us this week by Stamper Oil, which is a company, ladies and gentlemen, that loves five-word slogans, just like this one. Stamper Oil, we help you drill deep. And we're looking at, it wasn't even so much a touchdown, it wasn't a scoring play, it wasn't a big play, but... Going down the stretch, New England, this is a team that had a chance with two games remaining to lock down that number one seed, but the offense just sputtered in those final two games. They were out of sync, couldn't sustain drives, couldn't move the chains. Edelman was out, so there was a lot of you know double, triple coverage of a Gronkowski. So there were question marks about how New England was going to get back on track with Edwin back in the lineup, and we saw a play, a number of plays on their opening drive that really showed how important Edelman was to that offense, and just looking at one of them, it's a first and 10 play on that drive, uh, only less, less than a minute into the game. They had just converted a third down to move the chains, and it's just a quick slant to Edelman. But what really stands out is they empty the backfield. Now, going into this game, you're worried about pass protection. You're worried about that edge pressure from Kansas City with Houston, with Tomba Haley. But they empty the backfield, they've got 11 personnel, Brady's in the shotgun, and it He gets the ball out quickly. He runs. They've got dual passing concepts to both sides of the field. They've got a slant formation to the left, and they run a smash concept with LaFell on a corner route, Amendola on an out route to set up that sort of high-low. On the other side, they've got trips with Gronkowski in the wing, Edelman in the middle, and they've got running back James White to the outside and the run what's called a tosser concept with two slant routes, and Gronkowski simply releases to the flat. Kansas City's in cover one. They've got a nickel personnel on the field and they're playing off-man coverage from the defensive backs, and the two linebackers, Josh Maluga and Derek Johnson, Maluga's got Gronkowski in man coverage. When Gronk runs to the flat, Maluga just vacates that zone, so that opens up the throw-in window. But Johnson's that underneath-hole defender who, in cover one, he's supposed to be inside help on slant routes. That's his job. But he vacates that underneath hole, opening up this huge lane for Brady to find Edelman. And the reason he vacates is because of the brilliance of Tom Brady. Brady takes the snap and opens to his left, the right of Johnson, and looks at Amendola first. Johnson sees that, and even though he's supposed to be helping inside, he buzzes to the outside thinking he can make a play on Amendola, opens up the huge throwing lane. It's an 11-yard perfectly thrown ball, pitch and catch, first down, move the chains again. And it's so simple yet elegant in the brilliance and efficiency that it's one of those things that you wonder how how New England does it this is how they do it. And this is one of those things that a lot of times, you know, people, I
0: think a lot of times people look at, NF, at plays at the NFL level and they say, well, the guy was wide open or, you know, you know, it was an easy catch. The guy was wide open. But it is those little things that allow that opening to actually happen so you can make that throw and end up with that player open there. Because, look, again, you may have a certain defense called where you're, as you said, there's a player who is supposed to be filling that void. But if you're doing things at quarterbacks, you know, if you're looking off those defenders, if you are, uh, you know, putting yourself in a position where you're audible into the proper plays, you make it look easy. You don't have to make the hard play if you can figure it out
1: pre-snap. Right. And I've said this a lot, you know, don't make the game harder on yourself, especially with the quarterback position. You know, this is a defense that cover one with that underneath whole linebacker. It's designed to take away the slant route. But, you know, Brady knows the scheme, knows the coverage, knows exactly what to do gets the defender out of position. Could he have made a throw to LaFell on that corner route against cover one? If you look at it, yeah, that was probably going to come open. There's no need to do that. You've got a wide open throwing lane. You've got your favorite target or your co-favorite target with Edelman or Gronkowski open on a slant route. He's got a defender playing outside leverage and those linebackers have parted like the Red Sea. Take the easy throw, move the chains, extend the drive. That's how you win football games.
0: When we talk about Edelman, obviously he was used heavily in this game. Did you see, in terms of the routes that he would typically run before his injury, was there anything he wasn't running today?
1: I mean, I didn't see going through that game, both watching it live and then breaking it down. I didn't see anything missing, I think. And, you know, sometimes he does run, you know, wheel routes, Um, sort of some vertical concepts, um, deeper post routes. Didn't see a lot of that, but that might have been more because of game plan and scheme and trying to negate that pass rush that Houston has. That he was running his more, you know, what you might more expect more from Edelman, which is those option routes underneath, the quick slants, the quick outs, stuff like that, the quick hitters that allows Brady to get the ball out quickly. You saw a lot of that. You might see a lot of it again this week out in Denver. So we'll see. But I think from a health standpoint, Patriots fans should be pretty happy with what they saw from Edelman.
0: Yeah, definitely good news for Patriots fans there. So that is our Harry Stamper All-Go Offensive Play of the Week. Uh, I think it's time to do a little bit
1: of glossary time. How about that? We got some glossary, my friend, and we get some special teams glossary, which I know you're excited about. Doesn't get better than that. No, nothing better, right? What do we got this week? Today we're talking
0: about kickoff safeties.
1: Kickoff safeties, and this is not what
0: happens when you, uh, you know, when you take a safety in the end zone. We're not talking about that. I know that that's, you know, typically you hear the word safety and you either think the defensive player or something that scores your team two points. We're talking about players on the kickoff team that actually act as a safety for the main coverage unit, and specifically what their responsibilities are. Because a lot of times, part of it is just because I think the general angle that we watch kickoffs on on TV, it doesn't show you the entire field. A lot of times people don't realize there is essentially a there are, you know, between 2 and 3 safeties on every single play. Okay? The way that safeties typically play on kickoffs, pretty straightforward here, it's typically going to be coming from one of the outermost players on the field, either the ones which are stacked as far outside as possible or the twos who are just inside of those ones. So you're dealing with people on the outside of the field. They're typically a little bit smaller players, usually either running backs, safeties, cornerbacks. You're not dealing with big linebackers or tight ends. And their primary responsibility, they'll travel down the field with the kickoff unit for most of the field, and usually somewhere around the 35 to 30-yard line, they'll fold inside just a little bit, just maybe towards uh, the inside of the numbers or towards the hashes a little bit, and they'll fold inside there, and they'll typically trail the main Coverage unit just to provide a second layer of defense.
1: Okay. Now, do these guys have any sort of contain responsibilities? Because these are the outside guys the L1, the L2, the R1, the R2. Is there a danger in folding too far inside? So in general, when we talk about contain responsibilities,
0: those are usually delegated to players on the main kickoff coverage wave. So if you're doing what's called kickoff cover one, where the ones will be your safeties here, your twos will be responsible for contain as they head down the field. The ones really then, your kickoff safeties, they really want to stack up heads up with those players and just so that they're providing a second line of defense. And specifically, they want to stack and fill any holes in the coverage unit. That's, the, that's their primary responsibility. So when we talk about it, it's not so much containing the play on the outside. That's the responsibility of other players downfield. You really want to stack up, and if a player does, if a returner gets through the main coverage wave, you want to be providing, essentially, a defender who makes that returner go left or right. You want want to force him left or right just so the rest of the uh, coverage team can get back in position and hopefully make a tackle. The goal is not necessarily to be there right away and say, okay, I'm going to stop him. It's just make him go left or right so that someone, whether you or someone else, can make that tackle so you will actually stack decently far inside depending on where exactly the kick is going
1: now we're getting into the draft season now are there traits that kind of lend oneself to being a good kickoff safety like things that you know special teams coaches will look for to find those players
0: you know it's generally it's someone who is very spatially aware first and foremost because there's an awful lot happening on kickoffs it is probably The most chaotic play in football, just because you have two groups of 11 men running at full speed against each other, it is, you know, there's an awful lot going on. And when you are a safety there, you have some pretty important responsibilities. But the thing you have to remember is that teams do deploy their kickoff safeties in different ways. I was actually talking over the weekend uh, with Jay Feely, who's doing some analysis for CBS Sports right now. And he was talking to me and telling me, look, different coaches may even set different depths for uh, how far they want their safeties back. If you go and take a look at Denver's tape, actually, their safeties, they're running two, three, four yards behind the main coverage wave. They're not, they are not—they don't have much depth at all. Other teams will stack them 9, 10, 11 yards back, and so it'll depend on exactly what the special teams coordinator wants to run, actually. It's not necessarily a one-size-fits-all approach. It can feel like that because you typically most people don't realize that you, you know you can do some different things on kickoffs but it's uh, you know there's actually different responsibilities
1: and slightly different variations depending on where you end up is there a danger in the two different approaches and one over the other? You know, you mentioned Denver, they keep the kickoff safeties pretty close to that initial wave. Other teams might hold them back. Is is there a risk factor that goes into that determination? Well, it, it depends also
0: on what your overall strategy is for where you want to kick and how you want your defenders flowing. If you're kicking, for example from the right hash deep to the right side, and you're saying, okay, look, we're just going to shorten down the right side and bring our backside pinching down pretty close, you know, look, you you potentially open yourself up to being you know sealed off into that right side then, and that's something you know your safeties in that situation you may want to keep a little bit more depth in order to protect that backside in the event that a returner reverses field. If you're saying look, I'm just going to kick middle and let the returner you know go wherever we want, maybe you stack up a little closer because you're not quite as concerned about a cutback there. So it'll depend on what the exact team is trying to do and exactly uh, how they're trying to approach kickoffs. But it's you know, there's no one size fits all approach. It's kinda of like asking is the four three or three four better? Well, it depends what you're trying to do and what you're trying to take away
1: oh okay so i i get it okay that's cool that's so cool. i i man i just learned a ton of stuff about kickoff coverage man i had no idea half of this stuff happened
0: we could do like an hour or so on it if you want we should just do a spe- next week's <laughs> weekly
1: show instead of covering the super bowl we'll just do kickoff coverage we
0: will well i think we actually should do a uh we'll do a kicking show sometime in the off season we'll definitely see if we can put that together but uh we're we're out of time for the day we're cooked
1: oh man we're cooked we rolled through this one
0: we did we did but We do have uh, our daily podcasts that are going to be rolling on Thursday and Friday as well. Jeff Risden's actually going to be joining us on tomorrow's on Thursday. So make sure that you look around for that Quick Kicks podcast. But until next week on our main one, uh, make sure that you uh, always, as always, follow us on uh, Twitter, ITPylon, at ITPylon. Make sure you like us on Facebook. We are at Inside the Pylon. Uh, I don't know exactly what the prefix is, but I think it's probably facebook.com slash inside the pylon. And then, as always, we do have our website up at insidethepylon.com. Make it your first stop every day for anything you want analyzing both the NFL and the college game. Mark, I think it's time to call today. Another good day, my friend, and uh, we'll get
1: back at it pretty soon. To so all our listeners, we
0: will see you tomorrow on our Quick Kicks podcast and next week on the regular one. Chuck Zod and Mark Schofield, we'll catch you later.